Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year. Reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. Born in Vancouver in 1941, David Brown is a retired teacher living in Campbell River. He met the love of his life, Alice, in grade 12 in Quinell. Both eventually moved to Vancouver, Alice for practical nursing at Vancouver College, and David to the University of British Columbia for his Bachelor of Education, majoring in biology and math. They moved back to Quinell, where they married in 1963, and then it was back to Vancouver, where David worked on his master's degree. In 1966, they heard about an amazing principal at a new high school in Campbell River. The principal's name was John Young. So they moved to Campbell River, where David taught algebra and zoology at Cary High. He also taught biology with an amazing teacher by the name of Van Egan. Taking measure, listeners will recall from our March podcast with Neil Cameron that Van Egan was a close friend and some would say a disciple of Rod Haig Brown. The school librarian was none other than Anne Haig Brown. School staff meetings at the study at Above Tide brought David into contact with Rod Haig Brown, and the Browns and the Haig Browns became good friends. He's a member of the Haig Brown Institute Board of Directors, an avid reader of Haig Brown's books, and David joins us to read from his personal copy of Measure of the Year, which includes a dedication to him and Alice from Anne and the author himself. David, welcome to Taking Measure. Thank you. Nice to be here. For sure. It's nice to have you. I'm just going to read, as, as you mentioned, that dedication inside of this book, Measure of the Year. And it says, For David and Alice, who understand the kind of things, and the kind of life we love, in grateful appreciation of many happy associations and a few shared concerns. From Anne, who loves you, and... Rod signed it as well, Rod Haig Brown. All these years later, that still packs an emotional punch. Yeah, that was surprising. Yeah, something about that, it just pops out, for sure. So we invite all of our guests to read a passage from a different month. And seeing as it's December, and there is actually snow on the ground here in Campbell River as we speak, David, you're going to read to us from the month of December. And I believe the, the sub-chapter we're looking at 
is Let Them Eat Sawdust. That's the one. Okay. Yeah, this is a great book, Measure of the Year. It just has so many things in it, and it ties in with every month. And here we go. I have been, all my life, what is known as a conservationist. I'm not at all sure that this has done myself or anyone else any good, but I'm quite sure that no intelligent man, least of all a countryman, has any alternative. Now, when Rod was writing this book, man was man, and there wasn't much mention about women, so I'm going to add in my own, which is men and women. It seems clear beyond possibility of argument that any given generation of men and women can have only a lease, not an ownership, of the earth. And one essential term of the lease is that the earth be handed on to the next generation with unimpaired potentialities. This is the conservationist's concern. It is in the history of civilizations that conservations are always defeated, boomers always win, and the civilizations always die. I think there has never been in any state a conservationist government because there has never yet been a people with sufficient humility to take conservation seriously. This is natural enough. No man, no person is intimately concerned with more than his lifetime or her lifetime. Comparatively, few men concern themselves seriously with more than a fraction of that time. In the last analysis, all governments reflect the concerns of the people they govern, and most modern democratic governments are more deeply concerned with some brief set term of office than with anything else. Conservation means fair and honest dealings with the future. That's a very interesting definition of conservation, and only Rod could come up with that. Honest dealing with the future, usually at the cost to the immediate present. It is simple morality, with little or to offset the glamour and quick material rewards of the North American deity, progress. Thank you, David. When I think of the book as a whole, when I think of Measure of the Year, I am always astounded as you work your way through it at Rod Haig Brown's ability to give you the whole of an argument, to present one side, and when you think, oh, we're going down the rabbit hole here, he presents the other side as well, and does it so well that you get the feeling that he is trying to balance the book and encourage conversation. And yet, by the time we get to December, and we get to this subchapter with the not-so-friendly title of Let Them Eat Sawdust, it feels to me as though we take a darker turn here. This is not a Haig Brown who is trying to balance the interests of major industry with conservation. This is someone who is raising the alarm and suggesting that we are spending too much time worshipping progress, as he puts it. And right at the end of this chapter, he says, perhaps I take too much pleasure in prophesying doom. Perhaps I am too much a countryman and woodsman to understand the dream of progress through cities and machines, to feel the romance of the bulldozer and the earth mover, the concrete mixer and the four-lane highway. But I think we are on our way through the whole tragic story. It feels to me as though this is the darkest subchapter of the entire 
measure of the year. Does it feel that way to you? Um, yes. You became acquainted with Rod Haig Brown after you moved to Campbell River in 1966. This chapter was part of the book which published in 1950. And if we go back to 1950, we're looking at the battle for the dam has been fought and lost, and industry has followed as the dam was built for, and we have a pulp and paper mill, and we have a sawmill, and obviously they all have their needs, and they all want their piece of the river. Do you think that maybe this was Rod Haig Brown at a low point? He had more or less in the very recent past at that point lost uh, a battle he considered very serious. Well, certainly, because... um all you had to do, even when we arrived here, you had to go up to Buttle Lake, see the results of the dam, not the idea of clearing out the reservoir, any of those kinds of things with this huge amount of timber and logs and everything else that were just, it was an atrocity that it could be done like that. And BC Hydro in those days, of course, was pretty much in control of whatever they wanted to do. Obviously, those wounds in 1950 would have been very fresh. and certainly would have continued to be so as industrial growth, forestry, and so forth continued on the North Island and expanded, one would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I had marked out something on, I think, in the flap of this book. It talks about measure of the year and what it's about. Do you want me to do some reading out of that then? By all means. Okay. This is the introduction to, to the cover of this book. The author, his wife, and four children live on the Pacific coast of Canada, a part of the world which has been the writing for much of Mr. Haig Brown's fiction and nonfiction. Their farm borders the Campbell River on Vancouver Island. It's a country which, with the natural beauty of land and forest, river, and open sea, and Mr. Haig Brown's writing captures the delight that he and all his family take in the wonder of the changing seasons. So, take us back to 1966. You're new in Campbell River. You're new at Kerry High, and you're getting to know folks. Do you remember your first encounter with Anne, most likely in the library or maybe the staff room? Oh, dear. I'm so happy to see you come in and get a book. That was her? That was her. Yeah. She called everybody dear, and she was happy. Most... Well, we won't go into other librarians, but she was so happy to, to have, <laughs> especially if you didn't return a book. But uh, And the kids, would they loved going in the library. That was her strength. It was the strength of the entire school, really. That's what it was. When you think about it, it makes perfect sense that she would be encouraging the students to come into the library and enjoy their time there. Essentially, she was doing the same thing at home with her children. Yes, when we hear about the books at the dinner table and so forth. And certainly this marvelous study that I'm sitting in at the moment was by and large organized and populated by her, well, and Rod, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right When you mentioned the library, we often had staff meetings in the library. That's where I was going to take you next, because I'm thinking that's probably, that'd be my guess, as to where you first crossed paths with Rod Haig Brown. I think that's right. Probably is. I remember I knew his name because at Christmas time, one time, I think my brother, who was three years older than I was, we got two of his books. One was called uh, Starbuck Valley Winter. And uh, what was the other one? It'll pop in. 
as well. And so I had read those books at a very early stage. I've still got them, actually. In fact, I have all of Rod's books. So those two would have been your introduction, your first exposure to Rod Higbrown. Yes. Yeah. What was it like to meet him the first time at Above Tide? Well, he was just an unassuming, authentic kind of person. And it was so easy to talk with him and and chat in the library as well. And he was, yeah, he was just a lovely, lovely person. Now, I'm thinking these must have been fairly, I hesitate to say crowded, but if you're trying to put the staff of a high school into this study, there's not a lot of room to swing your elbows. (laughs) Well, our staff wasn't that big then. The school had just opened and there was, hadn't expanded, but didn't never seem to be. I I guess we managed to have a meeting and talk about it and enjoy it and that sort of thing as well. Now, you also met at Cary High Van Egan, who we have spoken about at length on earlier editions of this podcast. Mm-hmm. I would think that was a very important moment for you as well. Oh, absolutely. Van was my mentor. He was a gentleman, hardly ever got annoyed. I think he got really annoyed at me for I did one thing. And I thought, oh boy, I'm never going to do that. I can't even remember what it was now, so it wasn't too traumatic. <laughs> that particular one. And of course, we had a new school. We had two lovely biology labs. Every kid in the class had a good microscope for each one of them. And uh, we had a lovely prep room and an office and everything. So it was a dream job. And working with Van was so, so neat. He was so knowledgeable. And I was just a newbie. And uh, we got along really well. And Van, I remember one uniqueness about Van is he had the same sandwich every day at lunchtime. <laughs> and I, I just got used to saying, yeah, there it is again, There's, as well. So, Well, that, now you have to tell us what kind of sandwich that was. I'm not sure. I, <laughs> it wasn't bologna. It, was a little, no, it wasn't as tacky as that. It was something a little higher end, a meatloaf or something like that, for sure. Yeah. So your relationship with the Hague Browns, you and your wife Alice and Anne and Rod, that relationship developed over time. And so you saw a lot of each other socially as well as professionally with Anne. Right. And Alice was also working at the bank. And Rod would always go to see her because she knew exactly what to do and what he needed. And so they struck up quite a friendship as well, the two of them. When Rod wasn't writing and wasn't out fishing, we always tend to think of people for what we know them for. So when I think of Rod Haig Brown, I picture him here at this desk or out there in the river. But obviously, that's wildly oversimplified. There's much more to him than that. What was he like in his off time when he wasn't busy at the the desk here or out in the river? That's a good question. In order to describe him in his off time, I'd like to say that his demeanor was kind of off time for him. He was always in off time. I never, never thought he never seemed like he was rushed um, or any of those kinds of things. It was all very natural and authentic, I thought. This was his life fully lived approach, as, as is mentioned in the subtitle to, to Measure of the Year. Right, right, for sure. So now both you and Van would have brought the scientific biology to any discussion, whereas Rod would have been more of the observational, I would think, having spent so much time out in the river. That must have made for some very interesting conversations. 
Oh, it did as well. I mean, because Van was so very knowledgeable. He was really my mentor as well and uh, arriving. And uh, we got along just fine. And our conversations were quite, had a lot of depth to them, I think is the word. And, and of course, we were both thoroughly pissed off with the government at the time. Can you say pissed off in a conversation like this? That's okay. Yes, you can. You have my permission. <laughs> And uh, the, the government at the time was just, oh, I, I don't know. I, my temperature and blood pressure just goes up if I think of those particular times because they were so uninterested in conservation and the lay of the land and all the things that were so important for environment as well. In their eyes, they had a country to develop. That's, that's a good statement for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Take us back to... Your conversations, were they here in the study most of the time, or were they picking up out in the river, or where did you and Rod really chew the fat? Hmm. Well, it was never in the river, because I'm the least interested person in fishing, and especially getting out in hip waders and cold water. And <laughs> and so, it was often, a lot of times, in the study, really, and we just chatted about things. And we had some common concerns, and that's what kept our conversation going. So what did the Hague Browns and the Browns do for fun when they got together? You know, we didn't really, didn't really socialize too much with, uh, as, a, as couples. We, I think often it was, may have been at meetings or conventions or other kinds of things. And Mrs. Hague Brown, she, well, of course, she loved everybody, but she loved Alice as well. Alice, she just, and so did Rod. Oh. <laughs> he would always say, Alice, you got to sort me out <laughs> when he went to the bank. So there's a question I have to ask you. We've been asking others this. The story is told of Rod and others casting flies out on the lawn here at Above Tide. And in some of those stories, Rod is uh, expertly plunking the fly down in a wine glass placed out at some distance in the lawn. Others have suggested, no, the wine glass would tip over. That wouldn't work. Must have been a hat or a bowl or some such thing. Were you ever in a position to observe such behavior? Actually, no, I wasn't because I didn't do any fly fishing. I probably would have had a glass of wine in my hand, but why waste something on the lawn like that that could get knocked over? No, I didn't have much of an interest in, in fly fishing really. Given what Rod lays out in uh, Let Them Eat Sawdust from the month of December in measure of the year, he paints a not flattering picture. He paints a worrying picture that Elkhorn, Campbell River, is like so many other communities. We shall live well on it. How does he put it? I think we are on our way through the whole tragic story. Did he strike you as a bitter person in any way, having faced up to many challenges, having lost some that were very near and dear to him? No, my answer that's an easy one. Not at all. He wasn't a bitter person. And it was suggested by Brian Brett, the writer, uh, who was one of our earlier guests, that part of the magic of Haig Brown was his ability to turn seeming defeats into at the very least, partial victories. 
I think Brian summed it up really well. That's that's what he was very good at doing. And in his writing, it comes through, I think, in his writing as well. And the Let Them Eat Sawdust is probably about the, the most kind of a little darker side, perhaps a little lower edge for Rod and, and that part of it. But he points it out really well. That's what that chapter is all about, I think. In some ways, it's maybe a bit ironic. The dam, of course, is still there. And recently, BC Hydro put over a billion dollars into upgrading it, of course. But the pulp and paper mill that the dam in large part enabled and the sawmill that went along with it are long gone. And I wonder, Mm. any guesses as to how Rod would have felt about the status quo today? Well, I th- I, that's an interesting one. They, they both are long gone, aren't they? Indeed. Yeah, I'm, I remember tramping around in Westman and on the edges of Buttle Lake and, and uh, all that sort of stuff a number of times and just the, the debris and everything else that was in that wonderful water. But what would Rod think of it? He would be comfortably satisfied. He would say, well, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that's gone and now we can get back into some of the things that are very important that we should be doing. I, I never, I don't think I ever heard him getting really pissed off. Uh, never. He just didn't have that kind of a temperament as well. And I'd be frothing away at something and he'd usually say, well, now, David, you should kind of maybe think about this or whatever. I was in, I don't know, 20, my 20s or something. <laughs> that part of it. Hmm. Now, when you think, as is, it's been many years, obviously, since since Haig Brown was with us. When you think of him, what is he doing? Is he, is, do you, think of, you don't think of him so much as being out in the river, uh, I guess, because you weren't out in the river with him. No, but, I, was, I was smarter. <laughs> <laughs> and warmer. Yes. Uh, you realize these are dangerous things to say on a podcast about Haig Brown. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so what is he doing? Is I think of him, of course, uh, I've, been indoctrinated by sitting at this desk so many times. I think of him here at this desk, but obviously there was more to the man than that. What when when he pops into your head, what is he doing? What do you remember of him? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a great question because it really requires a fair amount of thought and reflection. Um, what is he doing? He would be doing all the things that he was doing when. I knew him and talked with him, and so many other people did as well, that thinking and writing and agitated at what's happening to the planet. <laughs> now it's now it's planet. It's not just the river or Campbell River or somewhere else. Um, we, we have to, you know, it's, it's not, it's not going to last forever. And I think it would really bother him. I'm glad that he ha- doesn't have to. I think that's... That's justice for him. Now, these battles he fought and the uh, progress is a four-letter word uh, approach uh, that we (laughs) see in him hinting at, at the very least, in Let Them Eat Sawdust, one gets the impression it was not all-consuming, but it took up an awful lot of his thought process, one would think. And his emotional process, too, I think. He didn't show it as much, but he would be always thinking about those kinds of things. Now, his views were, in some aspects, years ahead of their time. Also, in some circles, not particularly popular with those who were big fans of the dam and 
the development and the forestry that would bring prosperity to the land. Do you recall sort of how he dealt with that? He was not loved by one and all. He was a controversial character. Of course, the entire Socred government and cabinet and everything else was not really a big fan. So you're wondering about the, the number of people. Well, that's, that's the way that it was. I think he dealt with it very well. How did he deal with being, in many aspects, in the center of such controversy, where there were at least as many opponents, perhaps, and influential places as supporters? Didn't seem to externally or obviously bother him. And a lot of times we had a lot of conversations together down there in the study. And every once in a while, he'd let forth in, in terms of how he really felt. I said, good on your rod. That's that a boy. <laughs> you were young and impressionable when you met him as the young teacher, as when you met Van Egan, your mentor. Is it possible to reflect back and say how those acquaintances changed you? It's easy. They did. And teaching with Fan at Cary High and to add in, and the high school itself was really a formative thing for me in terms of my education philosophy and how I talked about things and did things. And it was a metamorphosis, really. And knowing Rod Haig Brown and seeing his position in the community, his outspokenness, uh, reading his, his works, how has that impacted on, on David Brown? Well, both of them impacted on me, both Mrs. Haig Brown and I could never call her Anne. <laughs> you just, it's like calling the Queen Liz. It was formative for my view of education. You know, I taught at Simon Fraser and I taught at UBC and I went back and got my master's and I did a number of things like that. I'm really, um, what's the word? I'm really glad that it happened. Now, you were one of the founding members of the Haig-Brown Kingfisher Creek Society. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? I think it was Van and I probably got together and, and something sort of came up with it and thought, well, that's something that we should have. Maybe the, the main purpose was to come and have discussions in the library and be at the house and talk with both of them. But, uh, yeah, it just kind of came up. And one of the main projects, of course, was the work to restore Kingfisher Creek, which is, of course, right here in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. We spent a lot of time on that and put it back into where it was. I forget who started it by saying, you know what, there's a creek. There used to be a creek here. Maybe it was Rod himself or something like that. And, and so we started, both Van and I brought down a number of biology classes at different times to do a restoration work on, on the creek itself. Yeah, that was a really major project. It was, and in many ways, a bit of a, a sign of things to come. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a, an environmental ferment. So it was really good. It was more than sending the kids out to pick up cigarette butts in the school grounds. <laughs> a little more to it than that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Tell us about the Hague Brown Institute. You're on the board of directors. And this, along with the museum, I guess we could say, maybe more responsible than anyone else for keeping the the vision of Rod and Anne Haig Brown still with us. Mm -hmm. And I think you summed it up. That's really the point of keeping it going. And we have meetings here at the house every once in a while. And to keep that, um, their, their legacy alive, really, 
and honor it, for sure. And so it's the Institute working with the museum, as I understand it, the museum at Campbell River, that helped to launch the Writer-in-Residence program. And also tied into that, of course, is making Above Tide a heritage property. Right, right. And the right, yeah, the writer in residence out of that thing is a, just a marvelous, marvelous program. It's, it's so unique. I guess there's, a, there's other writers in residence programs and that sort of thing. But the fact that it's here in the house and the people who are here, oh, they love being here. They just, they just said, I've never, never written so well and produced so much as I have just being in the study. Does it stand up? Does Measure of the Year, which was published more than 70 years ago now, does it still, does it still hold up? Yeah, I think it stands up, really. We should be, should be throwing out the algebra books, and, which I taught calculus and algebra, and loved it, but anyway. And then put in Measure of the Year or something, or Hague Brown books or something like that. So we're talking about Haig Brown with someone who didn't fly fish, doesn't fly fish in the river, and uh, an algebra teacher who's telling people to get rid of the books. <laughs> you're, you're a rebel, David. Well, or or to replace them with something. Algebra is an amazing thing. Calculus. I used to teach calculus as well. It's an incredible thing. I don't know how Newton invented it, but anyway. Um, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd be saying that. Absolutely way over my head. We got you to read from December. Are, are there any other particular spots in the book that really stand out for you? The whole book stands out for me, so it's really hard to be selective. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, David. I'm wondering if there's something that maybe we've left out uh, that you want to touch on. See, I've talked about fishing, but Rod and I snorkeled down the river many times, really. I've got a picture sitting right here on on the desk at Above Tide in the study, and I can see the generating station in the background. And there are three gentlemen in wetsuits. And in the middle is Rod. On the right is a guy who has a lot more hair than you do, David, I must say. But I recognize, <laughs> I recognize the face. It's Bob Somerville. No, it's you. Actually, Somerville's over on the other side. Oh, oh okay. Oh, that's, that's good. I, should, I must look at that more often. Take us back there. What was it like snorkeling with Rod Hig Brown? I believe the story is that maybe Alan turned him on to the snorkeling in the first place, but obviously it was something that was, well, it was made for people who wanted to learn more about fish in the river. Well, and it was such a nice spot to start because he'd go up to the, not to the dam, but to the outflow from the turbines. And you could just get into that part of it and float around a little bit and just check your gear and, and then just head on down the river. And you had no control. I mean, you just went down the river and that was it. If you wanted to stop and pick up a rock, tough luck or something and, or try to muffle in your mouthpiece like 40 pound tie over there, that sort of thing. Oh, it was really a great experience. Much better than I... I did a diving course and, of course, did the usual stuff uh, intertidal and in the ocean and then down at the bottom at 40 feet and 50 feet, but nothing like this out here. It was just so exciting. How often did you get a chance to do that with Rod? Oh, at least half a dozen times. I can only imagine he must have loved it. It was a whole new window on the world that he was so interested in in the first place. 
once he was there, that was it. He was hooked, for sure. There's a magic to that river when you get into it. Like you say, it's not like you can just say, okay, I'm done now and step out of it. Uh, you have to surrender yourself to the river, unless it's extremely low. And he would have remembered days in the summer when you could go out and swim in it quite easily. Did he strike you as somebody who maybe lived in the past, remembered that river before the dam and kept coming back to it? Uh, did he Did he tell you stories about the, the pre-dam river? It's an interesting question. He never talked about that to me or anything else, other than he, he hated that dam <laughs> uh, and, and the turbines and all the rest of it. And he, I never mentioned it, actually. So he liked going down the river, and I think that was said a lot of things to him as he was cruising down. You know, you couldn't talk when you're in the river uh, sort of thing. And it was just that you were, you were really, the word for me is you were by yourself. Totally. And I'm sure that's what he got out of it, for sure. And of course, to see the fish, that, that was a big one for him. To see them in their element, to see their behaviors and so forth that he could guess at from above the surface and learn through experience, but obviously another whole world. That must have been quite an occasion to be snorkeling the Campbell with, with Haig Brown. It was. 1966. Those were different times, a different era. But as you suggest, and know from personal experience, Campbell River was kind of a happening place on the educational front in large part because of John Young. It was also kind of a happening place because of Haig Brown and the river and his thoughts on conservation, which were being accepted more and more readily, I, I would suggest, as the 60s progressed. Were you aware of any sort of dynamic meeting of the minds between John Young and Rod Haig Brown? Oh, I think they both admired each other for their tenacity and their keeping a ferment happening and being change agents is probably how I would describe it. I think that they really appreciated each other. And it was like two people with special brains and and other kinds of things that they they like because we used to have staff meetings here as well too and uh so um, john was involved in that yeah perhaps they recognize the provocateur in each other the thought provocateur <laughs> you said it nicely i would say that's right that they did All right yeah for sure mrs egg brown was just the the queen in between all of it i think yeah for sure. She reminded me so much of my mom. And uh, and she used to call me, yes, dear. Come in, dear. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Mrs. A. Brown. Never called her Anne. Could, just couldn't do it. Even though she signed the book with Anne. Yes. It must have been fascinating to see her, the school librarian, in a staff meeting in her library, in her element. <laughs> uh, those must have been interesting meetings. The meetings themselves, that was the content of the meetings that was so enriching and so stimulating as well. And of course, she was she was part of that. So it wasn't just her surroundings, it was who she was. She contributed to the content of those meetings and the philosophy of those meetings. We really talked about education. Education, like conservation, often a controversial subject where a wide range of opinions are fiercely held. 
final thoughts. If there's anything we haven't touched on that that you'd like to get out there, David, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure. And for me too, I appreciate you taking the time and doing that sort of thing and the, all that sort of stuff. It's it's great. Brings back lots of memories. Thank you for sharing so much of the the Hague Browns with us. You're welcome. They're special people. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. You can link to the Haig Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Haig Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.